0: Hello and welcome to the Spike Podcast. My name is Ella Whelan, I'm the Assistant Editor at Spike and this week we return to the transgender discussion with Brendan O'Neill on the labelling of women as TERFs. I also talked to Rob Lyons about Philip Hammond's safety first budget and Nico Perino from FIRE who tells me about a recent crazy case of censorship on a US campus. Last week we spoke to Claire Fox about the silencing of debates around transgender politics and since then there have been several cases of exactly this happening. Dr Heather Brunskill-Evans, an academic and feminist, is being investigated by the Women's Equality Party, of which she is a member, for raising concerns about intervention for trans children. Then there's Lily Madigan, a young trans woman who has been elected as a local Labour Party women's officer. And Madigan, when she was a teenage boy just a year ago, helped to oust another women's officer, Anne Rosillo, for allegedly being transphobic. Both these women, Rosillo and Brunskill Evans, have been called TERFs, trans-exclusionary radical feminists, and they have been really quite horribly abused online. So, what's going on? Why are women being silenced in the discussion of gender? I decided to speak to our editor, Brendan O'Neill, who is currently in New York, about the problem with crying turf. So, Brendan, this week in particular, there have been several controversies about transgender politics. There was the big fury after last week's Moral Maze on Radio 4, where Dr. Heather Brunskill Evans kind of really gently raised concerns about intervention for trans kids in the course of a discussion about transgender politics. And she has been, uh, you know, really kind of hounded on social media. The Women's Equality Party, of which she's a member, is now investigating her for transphobia, And then there was also the story about Lily Madigan, who is a young trans woman, um, recently a 19 year old boy who has self declared as a woman, uh, who has now been elected as a woman's officer for a Labour Party local council. Um, What has come out of the discussion about these cases is a kind of clear message that uh, women who question transgender politics and really anyone who wants to get involved in the discussion is more likely not either going to be called a transphobe. And especially feminists who come out and criticise transgender politics are called TERFs, trans, exclusionary, radical feminists. Now, what is going on with this labelling of people as TERFs?
1: I think it's pretty outrageous, actually. As far as I can tell, turf really just means witch. I mean, it's just a new way of calling a woman a witch and saying you're a bad woman, you're an evil woman, you don't know your place, you really need to shut the F up, as they will often say to these so-called turfs. I think it's an incredibly dehumanizing term. It's designed to be dehumanizing. It's designed to basically say these these women, and they are predominantly women, are evil and wrong and must be cast out and they might only be cast out of polite society rather than out of um, society itself but that is uh, that's the driver behind it it echoes older uglier attacks on women who held the wrong beliefs or said the wrong things or behaved in the wrong way women have for a long period of history been attacked for doing those things and that seems to me to be happening again and i really think you know, if you want to call women trash and bitches and turfs and scum, then the easiest way to do that is really just to become a, a supporter of the trans worldview. And that really does give you license to call women all those names and to demean women in a way that over recent decades has been become a fairly unacceptable thing to do. So it's increasingly looking to me anyway as as if trans politics has become a license for a new kind of misogyny, saying that it's very easy to become a woman, you just put on a wig, change your name, call yourself a woman, and boom, you're a woman. And that seems to me to demean the idea of what it means to be a woman culturally and biologically and historically. It also gives a green light to these attacks on any women who dare to say, we think this is going too far, or we think this is we're rushing into new ideological territory and we should have open discussion. It also licenses the worst kind of sexist abuse of those women as basically um, modern day witches. So the whole thing seems to me increasingly clear that the trans outlook, this doesn't mean trans individuals, I would support the right of anyone to call themselves anything they want to, but the trans outlook is really harming, I think women's ability to speak freely and to argue their case in relation to women and politics and society.
0: Well, okay, so let's look at the case of Lily Madigan. And uh, just for anyone who doesn't know this story, as I mentioned at the start, Madigan was a 19-year-old boy, self-declared as a woman, uh, I think about a year ago, and has now been elected as an officer for a local Labour Party council. Uh, More interestingly than that, Madigan was previously part of a kind of campaign to oust another Labour Party women's officer, uh, Anne Rosillo, who is a feminist and a trade unionist and a lesbian, and was disagreeing with certain elements of transgender politics online she has been like dr heather brunskill evans hounded called a turf and actually all of her committee stepped down in protest at her mistreatment so there's a very kind of ugly backdrop to madigan's election and that is the kind of hounding of people and the calling people uh, as turfs we've always at Spike been critical of role of women's officer it doesn't sit right with us that uh, a woman needs to represent women we're very critical of that type of identity politics nevertheless when a 19 year old transgender uh, boy gets elected as a women's officer and has been complicit in the hounding of a woman out of her role Don't we need to talk about that?
1: Yes. I mean, Spite is not a fan of the new identity politics by any stretch of the imagination. We don't think women need to be represented by women. We don't think men need to be represented by men. Uh, We don't think black people need to be represented by black people. We think black people are just as capable of representing white constituents. Women are just as capable of representing male constituents and so on and so forth. For us, politics should really be a very universal humanist endeavor, seeking to push ideas and aspirations and visions that can appeal to as many people across society as possible. The idea of a woman's officer rankles with me in the first place, but then I also accept that there are women out there who have largely won the argument, for the time being at least, that things like women's officers are a good idea, that women's spaces are a good idea, that women-only shortlists for the role of MP are a good idea. I disagree with them on that, and I would be happy to have the argument with them as to why, but that's what they have argued for, and that's what they have instituted, and it seems to me that if you institute these things, then they really ought to be things that are held by women and one of the problems with the trans outlook particularly the gender recognition act which is going through as we speak is that it will allow anyone anywhere to declare that they are a woman or a man but certainly in older people uh, people in their 20s and 30s and 40s the predominant shift is from male to female so I think it's incredibly worrying because all those things that feminists have created and, and and women in politics have created, which we may agree with or disagree with, are now explicitly under threat because literally anyone, even someone with stubble, so long as he has a wig on and address and has changed his name and self-identifies as a woman can enter into those spaces and can take those roles and those positions. I think one problem with the the, the trans-critical feminists have focused too much, in my view, on the threat posed by trans women to women. And they seem to have this view, this very old-fashioned feminist view, in in my view, that anyone with a penis is given to violence and is a problem for women and shouldn't be too close to women in certain spaces. I think they risk pushing a moral panic about men and a moral panic about trans women, and I think that's really incredibly unhelpful. The bigger debate we need to be having is not to say that trans women are dangerous because they're still men. We need to be asking Why are so many people rushing to accept the idea that they are now women, completely women? And why is every institution in society, from the passport office down to um, the educational establishment, down to uh, political parties and their women's officers and so on, why are they all rushing to accept that these men are women? That's the bigger question that needs to be asked, rather than saying... Uh, they're scary because they still have a penis, which is just not helpful.
0: And now we mentioned this a bit at the start. Obviously, one of the most problematic things about the discussion about transgender politics is the censorious nature of it. So, you know, I have been called a transphobe. I've been called a TERF this week, and I think I'm slightly too young to be a TERF. But anyway, you've been called a transphobe. I think most people I know have at some level been called a transphobe, and they're not. They're just people who want to talk about Transgender politics talk about gender, question the big kind of things that are coming up now, whether we are okay with intervention for kids in relation to hormone treatment or even just kind of counselling, what we think about this question that's been thrown up by much of the transgender discussion of what it means to be a woman, all these important questions are being shut down. Transgender politics has kind of become a religion in the way that if you speak out against it, you are blaspheming, you are immoral, you are a wrong kind of person. What's the problem with that?
1: Yeah, it's it's completely dogmatic. It's become the new dogma. And there's a real contradiction in this because trans activists and, and their supporters on the left or in, in certain feminist circles, they will argue that trans is the new radical outlook or it's it's the new civil rights movement. It's, it's just like when black people in America demanded the right to vote or the right to work. It's just like when gay people in Britain in the 1970s demanded the right to engage in society freely or when women, in fact, demanded their rights. That is completely and utterly unconvincing as a comparison for one reason, really, which is that You know, how can you compare the trans movement to the gay movement? Just to give an example, the gay movement did not have the support of the established church. It did not have the support of the Tory party. It was not being promoted uh, in every single school in the land. It was not ring-fenced from criticism to such an extent that anyone who criticised it would be cast out of society. On the contrary, the gay movement in its early days was hated, and attacked, and ridiculed, and harassed, and the church certainly didn't like it, and the Tory party certainly didn't like it. So the comparison with these two things is completely and utterly ridiculous, because in truth, the trans ideology, the trans worldview, has the backing of virtually the entire establishment. It is extraordinary. I cannot remember a time when a new and rather eccentric ideology has been so completely embraced by every wing of the establishment the church of england the police the army the tory party who are fully behind the gender fluidity cult schools universities most of the liberal press it's astonishing the speed with which this has gone from being an eccentric outlier view to being a dogma that you question at your peril, that in itself should make us worried. And and it's concerning because what this means is if, if you call everyone a transphobe simply because they raise questions about this ideology that is being taught to children, uh, enacted in law by the Tory party, then you're really restricting open, honest debate about some pretty radical changes that are taking place. I think we should be allowed to debate whether it's a good thing that 12 or 13 year old girls are binding their breasts to hide their female physicality. Is that a good thing? I personally don't think it's a good thing. I think young people should be encouraged to be proud of the changes and developments they go through in puberty. I don't like the idea of girls hiding their breasts and feeling ashamed of having breasts and then wanting to become boys. I don't like the idea of um, young men who might have gay feelings and so on Being encouraged by some people to think, well, maybe you're women. Maybe you should take these drugs. Maybe you should block puberty. I think that's a very confusing thing to do to a 13 or 14 year old boy. I don't think it's acceptable that men are winning the right to go into women's changing rooms, not because they're dangerous, but because I think women deserve a space in which they can change their clothes and talk to each other and hang out and relax. So there's lots of things happening at the moment which should concern people. But as soon as you raise any question about them, you're denounced as a transphobe, if you're a, a man, or, or a turf if you're a feminist. And that means the discussion doesn't happen. The ideology sweeps through. And there's been no substantial critical debate about whether it's a good thing or not.
0: Well, finally, then, Brendan, I mean, this often feels like a caveat to say, but actually, it is important to say that, of course, Spike believes that anyone should be able to enact their personal liberty should be able to call themselves what they like dress how they like have sex with who they like all these things are very important for personal freedom the difference is i think that personal freedom often gets conflated with uh, political ideas and when the transgender lobbyists Demanding that institutions, you know, schools, government reorganizes itself around the des- personal desires of a, a relatively small group of people. Well, that needs to be up for discussion. And that isn't just a case of personal liberty. Why is it important to keep those two things separate? And why is it possible to, at the same time, assert that someone's personal life is personal to them and should be free? But when it goes out into the political realm, well, then it needs to be scrutinized.
1: Yeah, I think it's incredibly important. I mean, absolutely, I would support the right of anyone, firstly, to engage in any consensual sexual behaviour they want to, to develop any kind of relationships they want to, to be gay, straight, bisexual, and trans, you know, in in people's personal lives, of course. People can change their names, they can, say, call themselves women, they can put on whatever whatever clothes they want, everyone must have the freedom to do those things. And most people who know them and most people they encounter, certainly in, in in certain areas of life, will accept their new name and will use female pronouns. And that kind of thing happens all the time. And that really is not a problem. It becomes a problem when It's expected that every social institution must also recognize that identity and must change itself in response to that identity. Because then what you have is people rather narcissistically and sometimes quite tyrannically imposing their subjective view of themselves and their subjective view of sex onto institutions and via institutions onto society itself. And the example I always give is you can now go back to your birth certificate and if it said male or boy, you can erase that and change it to female or girl. Now, the reason that's a problem is because a society needs to know how many people are being born, what sex they are, what gender they are. These are public documents in in the sense that they record the birth and the introduction to society of all new people. Now, in the future, if we look back at a birth certificate from the 12th of August, 1985, and it says a girl was born, it's not true. That is a lie. So we are sanctioning erasure of truths from the past and their replacement with lies. That's firstly, deeply Orwellian. And secondly, it demonstrates the impact that this kind of thing can have on society itself and on the ability of society to use reason and measurement and analysis to determine how many people there are, what their roles might be, where they should go, what we should call them, what they should be taught at school, what they're allowed to say, all these incredibly important social questions are thrown into disarray or completely silenced by the trans ideology and I think one point it's really important to make is this is not the handiwork of tiny numbers of. of evil, sharp-elbowed trans people. The vast majority of trans people just want to get on with their lives. This is a consequence of a small number of trans activists, but more importantly, the complete caving in to this gender fluidity idea by every wing of the establishment. That's where the real problem lies. Their inability to hold a line and say, hang on guys, let's talk about this in a bit more detail.
0: That was Brenton O'Neill on the problem with censoring the trans debate. Now for our next guest. This week, Chancellor of the Exchequer Philip Hammond made his budget speech, and aside from a few corny jokes about Theresa May's cough, the budget was, as expected, pretty dull. Housing was mentioned, but as always, not enough was promised, and young first time buyers were thrown a bone with stamp duty. The only interesting bit was the fact that Hammond was relatively honest about the state of the UK economy, i.e., that it's pretty dire. So, Why are we still putting up with endless tinkering and not demanding that our politicians come up with big ideas for economic growth? What effect does Brexit have on the budget and the economy? Well, to find out, I spoke to spiked columnist, author and science and technology director at the Institute of Ideas, Rob Lyons, about what kind of economic plan the UK really needs. First of all, Rob, could you just summarise for us what the budget was about? I know that you mentioned in your piece that you wrote for Spikes this week that Philip Hammond was actually quite honest about the state of the economy. Can you tell us what he talked about?
2: I don't think anybody had any great expectations before the speech about sort of dramatic changes of policy or, or, or new initiatives. And I think that that was borne out. Uh, most of it was you know, fairly small measures to tinker with you know, a little bit of training here, a little bit of investment there, the usual stuff about fuel prices and tobacco and booze and whatever. And so the headline grabbers were really about first-time buyers sort of being uh, let off stamp duty uh, for places up to £300,000. And that was really like the, the real headline grabber. I mean, there wasn't a lot else in the budget in terms of what the government is planning to do it's still attempting to bring down the the budget deficit and uh, but that target is being put off more and more because it refuses to come down because of the lack of economic growth in the economy and i think it's where that's where the really interesting stuff in the budget was was actually in the announcements of what the government expected going forward for the economy and the office for budget responsibility has now basically downgraded its forecasts for economic growth and for rises in labor productivity and uh, and the result of that is that the economy is is going nowhere particularly fast wages won't go anywhere particularly fast and in terms of government spending etc there there won't be sort of any great boost to the government's finances so that deficit's going to stick around well into the next decade.
0: Well as you mentioned there housing is always a big topic and this year of course it was mentioned the Tories and the members of the Labour Party have been sort of warring about numbers for the last month on housing and uh, as usual nothing much was offered of any consequence. As you uh, have pointed out, not enough houses are being built and not enough houses are being promised. Why do you think they are continuing to underestimate the scale of the problem with housing?
2: What's interesting is there has been some liberalisation of planning laws and there has been some rise in the number of homes being built. So it's back over 200,000 per year at the moment. But we need at least a quarter of a million just to stand still if you like when you take into account rising demand from people some properties get removed from the market as well because they're no longer suitable we're still actually in deficit in terms of housing the the demand is still going up relative to supply and Philip Hammond admitted that actually one of the big problems was the supply of land. But because it's the Conservative Party, a lot of their supporters are in the sort of suburbs and uh, just outside cities, and they don't want to touch the green belt, which is one of the big barriers holding back uh, new housing. So even with some promises of new liberalisation of planning laws going further, we'll get to 300,000 homes per year, but it won't be again until the middle of the next decade, which is that means that house prices are, are likely to carry on going up, especially when credit is cheap. And so that's just the idea that you know, young people or young adults are going to find it easier to get onto the housing ladder without the help of the bank of mum and dad. That's just being kicked off into the future.
0: And as expected, there was some panic about the effect that Brexit would have on the budget. Some called it the Brexit budget. There has been discussion about Brexit's effect on the economy ever since the vote took place. Of course, we have to remind people that Brexit hasn't happened yet. uh, So its effect on the economy is yet to be seen but in terms of what Brexit might mean uh, for the things that are in this budget and how it influences it, was it a big player in Philip Hammond's thinking?
2: The major thing that's happened since the vote was that for a, a period immediately afterwards, the pound slumped. And as a result of that, the cost of imports increased and therefore inflation went up a bit. And because it, wages aren't rising very quickly, the effect is a real term cut in, in the average salary. Um, and that's obviously a problem going forward it's it's not clear how much of an effect brexit will have and it really depends on what kind of deal we strike with the european union or, or whether we actually decide to go down a completely different path for example some people are talking about you know a completely sort of free trade attitude no tariffs on any goods coming into the uk things like that the point my, i'm making in the article though is that the problems of the british economy are very long standing have existed all the time that we've been uh, part of the common market and um, the European Union. In fact, one of the drivers for us joining the common market back in 1973 was the state of the British economy. And really, nothing has fundamentally changed there. We've seen steadily declining investment in industry and this rise in productivity, which is the driver of increasing wealth and increasing wages. That's been going down and down. And, and, and in this budget, the Office for Budget Responsibility said, actually, it's optimistic forecasts that we would get back to a rise in productivity of about 2% per year haven't come true. And now it's downgrading its forecasts going forward into the future. Dealing with that problem, far more fundamental to the outlook for our economy than anything that could possibly happen. Even the worst case scenario in terms of Brexit would suggest that we might lose, the economy might be 6% smaller in 2030 than it would otherwise be. But we've seen it just in the past few years that if we had kept on the same sort of trajectory in terms of rising productivity, we would actually be, the economy would be about 20% bigger than it is now. Um, so so you can see that that is much more fundamental to our future. And Brexit should be an opportunity to really shake things up. And at the moment, what we're seeing is a very safety first sort of approach to the economy rather than using this as an opportunity to really fundamentally look at things and and change things in, in a way that could really start boosting wealth production again.
0: Well, finally then, Rob, obviously you've outlined the inadequacies of this budget. And like other discussions about the economy that have been had, nothing really comes up to muster for what the UK needs. Uh, But what do you think should be in this budget? What kind of economic plan does Britain need in order to drag itself out of this extremely long, protracted economic slump?
2: One of the biggest problems that, that the economy faces, this long tail of relatively unproductive firms. The best British firms are as productive as anywhere in the world. But there are an awful lot of companies that are hanging around, uh, dragging productivity figures down, dragging investment down, being kept alive by the fact that it's it's easy to get credit, it's easy to manage debt. So I think something like a third of companies are actually losing money at the moment. And They can survive, though, because of this cheap credit environment, this emergency environment that was created after the crash has just continued. We're still in emergency measures. And we actually have to now sort of bite the bullet and do things that will actually push some of those firms out of business, uh, but also then create the breathing space for other companies to, uh, to sort of fill that gap, increase the average productivity and so on. So things like, there was such a hoo-ha the other uh, other week about interest rates finally going up after many years by a quarter of a percent. Probably that needs to go quite a bit further than that. And maybe things like a, a more open approach to trade would force companies to either be more productive and more efficient. And, and obviously that means that there's it's not popular because it's going to mean the short-term job losses and so on. We, we need a, a, a package of reforms around you know, helping people who do lose their jobs, but we also need to start putting in place the things that will actually help business in the future. There's lots of ways in which the government, you know, can step back and help create a climate where business would be bit easier to conduct and where we could push through innovation. But at the moment, what we're having is, you know, tinkering with tax codes and things like that, that and that's just really not going to cut it anymore. We need to be uh, a lot more radical about transforming the economy. and That attitude really isn't there.
0: That was Rob Lyons on the UK budget. Now for our final guest. You may be used to hearing about crazy bands on campus. At Spiked, we've pretty much come across them all, from censored hats to songs to speakers. But a recent case at Brandeis University in Massachusetts in the States even shocked us a play about students censoring a production for being offensive was censored by students in real life for being offensive. It's as ludicrous as it is confusing. Many of you listening will know about Spike's Free Speech University Rankings, which judges all UK universities on the basis of their attitude to free speech. Well, we were inspired by FIRE in the US, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, which has its own traffic light system. Who better to give us the lowdown on what's going on at Brandeis? I decided to give Nico Perino a call. He's an author and the communications director at FIRE. Well, hello, Nico. Thanks very much for coming to join us. Nico is from the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education.
3: Thank you, Ella. Thanks for having me.
0: Brilliant. So, Nico, now, uh, the case of Brandeis University is, I don't know whether to describe it or, as good or bad. It's certainly interesting. It certainly made me laugh at first and then when I found out more about it uh, I was kind of in shock and it is hard to shock us at spikes and at fire who stand up for free speech cases on university campuses of crazy bans and mad censorship we've kind of heard it all but I thought I had heard it all until I heard about Brandeis University tell us what has happened there
3: yeah, well, we thought we had heard it all as well. And then we got a call from the Boston Globe telling us about this case. And we <laughs> sort of just, you know, put our hands on our desk and, and then face palmed our heads. And it was like, ah! But uh, Brandeis University, for your listeners who who might not be aware, is a university named after the late Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis. He is one of the greatest free speech champions to ever sit on the Supreme Court in the United States. He wrote this excellent concurrence in a case called Whitney v. California, that really set the stage for the free speech revolution in America. Brandeis University is also the university that houses uh, the papers and recordings of Lenny Bruce, who's a late comedian who died after being put on trial uh, in six different cities for obscenity. He was bankrupt, he couldn't find any place to work, and left destitute, he overdosed on drugs. a lot. Many people consider him killed by censorship. So you have these two great legacies that Brandeis University is purported to uphold. And then earlier this month, we get the call, and we learn that Brandeis University is canceling a play about Lenny Bruce after students complained about it. This is a play that the faculty in the theater department at Brandeis have been working on for over a year. It's a play that when the theater faculty first read it said it was exciting and they would, couldn't wait for students to uh, engage with it. And then the play, the script, got in the hand of the students. They called it an overtly racist play. They said it would be harmful to the student population at staged. They took issue with the playwright himself, Michael Weller. They said that the issue we all have with the play is that Weller is an older, straight, gendered, able-bodied and white man and it isn't his place to be stirring the pot. And the most ironic thing about this play is that it's a play about a student discovering Lenny Bruce in Brandeis's Lenny Bruce archives and deciding that he wants to put on a Lenny Bruce-inspired routine on campus. That routine uh, is overheard by students on campus. They post about it on Facebook because they're offended. Black Lives Matter picks it up and then, you know, Organizes a protest surrounding it. The university doesn't like this protest, that this protest is going to happen, tries to throttle the routine. And then, you know, we get toward the end and we learn what happens. I won't spoil it for anyone, but it's a play about offended students pushing a university to cancel a play. And in this case, real life is imitating fiction. Brandeis students were offended by a play and they got the play canceled.
0: Um, That is hard to believe, but of course, I think this is the level of farce that some cases of campus censorship have gotten to. I mean, I know that uh, FIRE works on the basis of supporting students fighting for free speech on campus. And in this case, um, you guys have written uh, some letters to the university basically just asking what the hell is going on. Um, But what has been the response among Kind of dare I say it normal students, because in the case of these cases, it often is a quite a small bunch of a minority of students who are pushing university and sadly they often get listened to but i mean what's happened since that initial kind of ban
3: so the ban came as a result of student calls to the president and to the theater department demanding it be canceled and, and one of the students who was involved and has been quoted extensively said she hadn't even read the play she, she said she just heard that it was racist because they didn't like at least some of the students some of the students didn't like the language that was used in the play Uh, But the new narrative that the students are pushing is they didn't like the treatment of Black Lives Matter in the play. They said it wasn't fair to Black Lives Matter. Now, whatever you think about Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter is protesting a lot of events on campus. I mean, for Christ's sake, they, they shut down a speech by a member of the ACLU. I believe it was last month. So it's not out of the realm of the possibility that Black Lives Matter might protest a student putting on a Lenny Bruce routine. Anyway, we wrote to the university just kind of asking what gives here. You know, why is a play that incorporates Lenny Bruce's routines being censored? It's just ironic. Uh, they wrote back to us. They said, you know, it's the theater department's call and uh, we can't infringe on their academic freedom. Fair enough. But the the idea that students are now, you know, it's like the inmates are running the asylum, are now getting to call the shots as to what curriculum the uh, theater arts department can, can put forth is, is just absurd. And you asked the question about normal students. It's hard to tell. I spoke with one student who was for an extended period of time, an hour, who was sort of leading the charge in this protest. And he said, you know, the frat bros, uh, are all critical of those students who led the charge for the plays cancellation, whatever that means. I, I don't know, but it seems to me now, at least at this point, that it's just a handful of students who are defending the cancellation.
0: Another thing that Fire does is your traffic light um, rankings of universities, of which uh, you know inspired spikes our own free speech university rankings here in the UK. And Brandeis has a yellow in that uh, ranking, which kind of means that it does, in some ways, um, censor speech. And obviously, this is a perfect example of how oh. how that ranking plays out in practice. On the whole, we've had a kind of, for the last, I'd say, sort of five years, a flurry of very interesting, very kind of appalling cases of censorship on campus. On the whole, can you just paint for Spikes UK listeners what the picture is like of campus censorship in the States?
3: For most of FIRE's, what is it now, 18-year history, we have been fighting bad-acting administrators on campus, administrators who are just trying to protect their fiefdom, to try and avoid controversy, and it's the students who have always been on our side. So FIRE's full you know, mechanism, really, to fight censorship for most of our history, has been a mechanism to fight back against administrators. And to that extent, we've been largely successful. You mentioned our spotlight rating system. The number of red light schools has gone down dramatically. Red light meaning they have policies that are so egregious that they would never stand up to uh, First Amendment scrutiny in a court of law. Uh, I think we're, we're down around 40%. When we started, it was somewhere above 75%. So we're winning that battle. But We're not winning the war because now the the situation on campus has transformed, where it's the students who are leading these drives to censorship. We've seen this at Brandeis. I didn't even mention the case happening at the same time at Knox College in Illinois, where students protested a planned staging of Bertolt Brecht's The Good Woman of Szechuan, because they didn't like that a predominantly white theater department was putting on a play that featured predominantly Asian characters. And Like I said, the the whole conception of the university now is being turned on its head. Students are being seen as consumers to please rather than minds to open, as one of my colleagues put it. And that's the problem that we have right now is we have, you know, 18, 19 year olds determining what can and cannot be said on campus. And this is a new war for fire. It means we need to get back to first principles and explain to students why an open marketplace of ideas, why allowing everyone to speak their minds and be who they are is important. Because otherwise, we're just going to get this situation where we're taking uncharitable interpretations of people's works of art, uncharitable interpretations of people's arguments, and we're letting one or two people on campus unilaterally decide for the rest of us what we can hear.
0: And finally then, Nika, why do you think it's so important to convince the students on campus, even those who might not want to engage with this, that it's so important to stand up for free speech, to defend your fellow students, whether they're putting on a play, whether that be controversial, whether they're inviting a speaker, why is it really important right now to fight for free speech on campus?
3: I've read the play. Uh, I don't think it's anything that anyone else is describing who's calling for its cancellation. But as to your question about why we should allow this, allow open and free expression on campus, this is the exact reason what's happening at Brandeis. You have three students, maybe more, uh, but just a handful, unilaterally deciding for a whole community, and at this point a whole nation, that knows about this story, what the play is, and then making determinations about who can and can't hear about it. You know, put the play out there. Maybe the students are right about the play. Maybe you're liable to agree with them. Maybe you're liable to disagree with them. But you can't have that conversation in an environment of censorship, in an environment of prior restraint, where people aren't allowed to engage an issue on its merits. They have to hear through the prism of someone else's interpretation what the play is. And that's my big problem here. You know, let the play stand for itself as in in the same way Lenny Bruce stood in court and said, don't imprison my 6000 words. Don't imprison Michael Weller's words here. Let people decide for themselves.
0: You've been listening to The Spike Podcast. To get your daily dose of spiked opinion, head to spiked-online.com, subscribe to our podcast feed. And if you'd like to help Spiked continue to thrive, you can sponsor this podcast, get in touch with me at ella.whelan at spiked-online.com, or go to our page to make a donation. Thanks for listening.